Ernie O'Malley went by many names. He was known at different times in his life as Ernan O'Malley, Bernard Stewart, Cecil Edward Smith Howard, or simply General. He was a medical student, a revolutionary, an intellectual, an oral historian, and a gifted writer. Many books have been written about his life, many books that focus on his role as an IRA volunteer and his activities in the War of Independence and Civil War. And while this period of his life is obviously important and iconic, it was only part of that life. Tonight, we're going to hear about the man behind the iconic name. Ernie O'Malley, A Life, is a new book written by Harry F. Martin, together with Ernie's son, Cormac O'Malley, who joins me now. Cormac, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Pleasure. Now, lots of books written both by your father and about your father. He's one of the most extraordinary chroniclers of the War of Independence. What were you and co-author Harry Martin attempting to do with this particular book? Well, the book starts off with uh, Harry was inspired, I guess, by a lecture I gave. And then he sort of said, this is just a magnificent character that uh, fits into the Hemingway, the the General Grant. And uh, he was just inspired by the character. And the more and more he read, I then gave him a couple of books and he said, "Okay, we're going to have to do a book about this. So he got inspired and it was a, a hero worship to start off with. And I had to calm him down. I said, look, if we're going to do, he asked me to do a biography with him. So I said, well, if you're going to do a biography, let's make it non-academic, more personal, and sort of telling the layman's story, the version of Ernie O'Malley. So basically, he agreed to do that. And uh, I brought out all of the, the new materials that I'd done in 1970, interviewing people. So I had I had that available. And so I think uh, what we tried to produce and did produce was a, a very human story, personal story of Ernie O'Malley and, and his family. Let's talk about that family because his early life, he didn't, he came from a large family, not actually a very nationalist family. So just tell me a little bit about his mother and his father and and his siblings, because his siblings kind of divide between siblings who joined the British Army in World War I and siblings who are associated with the national movement. A very fascinating family. Yeah, well, I mean, it sort of starts with Luke Malley, who is a bright young fellow, not not a particularly nationalist, who grows up as a far, son of farmers down in, in Ballyglass, not too far from Castle Bar. He's a, a local, uh, gets his education and sort of stops at age 13, 14, but he's asked uh, to, to stay on as a monitor. And as a monitor, you know, you're in a good position to then get a job because clearly you're identified as a smart fellow. He goes into Castle Bar, gets a law clerk position. So law clerk positions are not something, you know, you want to be fairly conservative and, and dot the I's and cross the T's. So his life was that way throughout. He didn't want to cause any ruptions. And he lived in a house, three-story house across from the RIC, and he got a job in the basically the British Civil Service, came up to Dublin and worked in the Congested District Board, and again, didn't want to rock the ship. And so he raised uh, children to be in that manner. So as you said, it was no surprise that two of the sons 
uh, went off to join the British Army. Why? Well, it was, you know, 1914, it was unemployment. This was a good opportunity. You could help support your family. And why didn't Ernie O'Malley go on? It wasn't because it was a big nationalist. He got a scholarship to UCD to go into medicine. So, you know, to save the family money, he got education. But there are a couple of things behind that. He'd already uh, gone to CBS school, and CBS was a good nationalist school. They were independent of the British-led educational system, and so the brothers could uh, have their own books for what they wanted their children to read, their pupils. And so, no doubt, he was uh, inculcated in part uh, by the nationalism from, from the schools. And then in 1916, that background suddenly came to spark with reading the Proclamation of Independence. Tell me about his involvement in the 1916 Rising, because to some extent, or I think to a considerable extent, it was he was freelancing, really, wasn't he, as a, as a volunteer in 1916? Yeah, you could say he was a casual nationalist. He went down to college that morning, though there was no college, it was a holiday, on Celia Street, where down in Temple Bar, and went over to see some friends in Trinity, and they sort of said, why don't you join us, we'll give you a gun, we don't want to be caught up in this Sinn Féinor activity. And he said, well, he had to uh, go home for his uh, dinner. So he went home, and on the way home, he met a fellow who was an art student. Uh, God bless the art students. Anyway, he said, uh, why would you join Trinity? Uh, They're not not us. So you'd be firing on your Irishman. Anyway, as it turns out, he went home, had his dinner. Uh, There was very careful curfew in the Malley family, and the family name is Malley, it's not O'Malley. So he climbed out uh, the back room of the second floor and climbed down and met up with a friend and started, um, he had a rifle, Mauser rifle, and started shooting down on the uh, docks. He had not uh, joined the Irish Volunteers. The Malley family around uh, the uh, dinner table would have mocked the green uniform of the Irish Volunteers. And so I often say that we don't even know if they would have supported home rule. As long as he had his job, it wouldn't really have uh, impacted things. Then he does join the volunteers and very quickly, at a very, very young age, becomes a military organiser. One of his jobs is to train volunteer units. That wasn't a particularly comfortable experience between, you know, 1918, 1919, before the War of Independence actually gets underway. Well, what happened in 1916, I mean, he went back to the university that next week, started winking at fellow nationalists, so the trend grew. They started doing, uh, going to Cayleys and activities. And finally, uh, you know, he gave up his medical studies in, in March 1918, perhaps because he hadn't completed the exams or whatever, but he goes down to the headquarters of Michael Collins and, you know, question, how many people were there in the headquarters at Collins at the time and what to do with Ernie O'Malley? So they sent him up as an organizer to help Richard Mulcahy, who was up in Coal Island at the time, and Father started marching people around and doing things. It was early days on the role of the organizer, and bit by bit, the headquarters developed the idea that they could have these roving characters who would go into brigade areas and help train them. And, of course, you would be training at the company level, at the battalion, at the brigade level, 
all of whom uh, had never had experience organizing these types of things. So it was really important to have the organizers uh, sent by headquarters. There was always a tension between the local people and the headquarters. You know, is this a spy? Why is he coming to? Why does he make us work? Why do we have to do notes? What's all this lecturing stuff? We want a revolution, you know. So they don't really buy in readily, but the senior managers on the local brigade would have. Uh, but the farmers had a great difficulty, you know, being paraded around by a university student. Now, you mentioned youth. I mean, everyone was fairly young in that. I mean, if you look at Michael Collins's age, I think he was only six years older than my father. So everyone was really, really young. And, and indeed, the younger you were, you, the, the, the better chance you had been of active. And if you do a roll call as to the older men in the IRA, uh, they may not have been willing to be as active as the younger men. So, yeah, he had that role for four or five years. He still has that role, obviously, during the War of Independence. And however uncomfortable it might have been prior to the War of Independence, it became even more uncomfortable during the War of Independence himself. I mean, that comes across in the wonderful book on Another Man's Wound. I mean, he literally did not have a shirt on his back. Yeah, he, he tells us a beautiful uh, section in the book where he describes uh, where his hat were, where his trousers were, and the trousers was from someone quite large, should I say, so I had to put the big belt on to hold it up. There's always a marvelous description of him in the book as to what he really looked like, and he would have had on his back, uh, you know, a knapsack, and he described what the pens and pencils and compasses, he carried his office around on himself, and uh, that was a great burden and a great weight, and f- clearly he got quite physically fit by doing that. And he remarks that the other men could go home to the local homes and sleep, and he had to sleep in somebody. And every three weeks, you know, he'd be off to a new assignment. It was a truly, he refers to it as a crusade. Now, one of the most harrowing sections of On Another Man's Wound is where he is captured and he is arrested. Tell us about what happened to him when he is uh, when he's taken prisoner by the, the Crown forces because he is subjected to horrendous torture, basically, that, that he had to live with for the rest of his life. Uh, he, he was sent by Mulcahy to take the uh, Black and Tan, newly created Black and Tan uh, headquarters down in Inishtig. And while he was preparing to do that, he got captured and uh, caused uh, great difficulty for the Kilkenny Brigade members because he had his notes were captured. But he was also captured with a gun and equipment and maps. So those people knew that he was up to something. So he was almost shot right there in Kilkenny before he was. Uh, some general interfered uh, with the, what was going on, and he'd been hit with the with the bayonets. His feet had been trampled, which impacted his uh, lifelong period of, of walking. Anyway, he was sent up to Dublin Castle, and there there was uh, Captain Hardy and Major King. And they had already, uh, three weeks before that, taken care of Clancy and, and some other fellows in the same room. And they mentioned that to Father. So, do you want to end up like them? So they had a series of sort of tortures and interrogations uh, asking him what his name was, and he gave his name as Bernard Stewart. And they put the red-hot pokers on his eyebrows and singed his eyes. So in later years, when he was driving the car at night, he couldn't see, he had to stop. 
And they also, Hardy went over and said, well, I'll teach you now, and answers the question, three, two, one, and shoots a, a blank pistol into his head. And needless to say, that was torture for a certain way. How did he escape? Well, uh, they couldn't get anything out of him, and uh, eventually they just threw him out from Dublin Castle out to Kilmainham. And uh, Michael Collins knew that he was uh, had been captured and then got informed as to where he was. And Collins and uh, the 4th Battalion of uh, the Dublin Brigade set up a process of whereby they got to know the j- two of the jailers, British uh, Welshmen, who proactively helped uh, Father get bolt cutters into the jail, a pistol into the jail, other uh, ammunition, other armaments. And uh, he eventually broke out. Uh, Paddy Morn did not come with him, but Frank Teeling and Simon Donnelly, and he all escaped on uh, Valentine's Day, uh, 1921. And that's how he got out. He took the anti-treaty side during the Civil War, and uh, he was arrested. He he spent time in a, a Free State jail as a guest, if you like, of the of the Free State government. He was also shot a number of times. Tell me briefly about his Civil War experience. Yes. Yeah, so, in fact, uh, he was uh, appointed uh, director of organization because of his knowledge of the country. Very good decision, and and that's something that he could have been good at in uh, March 1922, and then uh, the anti-treaty lads took over the four courts in April, and he created his own office up there. And eventually, since he was, uh, you know, the senior command of the IRA at that time didn't have much actually active service and knowing what to do, so he was appointed to be in charge of the defense in case the four courts got uh, attacked. And ultimately, he was the man who surrendered the Fort Courts after everything collapsed. And on his way toward Mountjoy Jail, they put him in the Jemison Distillery. And he, he and Sean Lamass and a couple of others managed to escape through a side door very quietly. They interrupted the manager and said, excuse me, we're going to go this way. And they said, fine. You know, they, he didn't know what was going on. And so he escaped. And the sad thing, and one of the many sad things in the Civil War is the senior management of the Republican side were all caught, captured in the forecourts. And so it was only men like uh, Liam Lynch and uh, Ernie O'Malley whose only responsibility had to run a division. Big difference between running a division and running a war. And uh, neither of them had ever had what you call headquarters experience in how to handle artillery and uh, ships and finance and all these things. And I'm sure Father was uh, pretty bored by all of that. He eventually got into the O'Rahillies' sister's house in Aylesbury Road, and at some time the uh, Free State found out that he was there. And November 4, they surrounded the house and uh, captured him after a fairly bloody event and the newspapers of that Saturday, November 4th, sort of said, a movie should be made about this because it was attack back and forth. And eventually, uh, you know, he had uh, nine bullets in his body that day and was uh, he wasn't shot or executed because he was still so sick. Where do you stand on the issue of the blowing up of the public records in the four courts? Your father has been accused of having mined that part of the four courts specifically, and he's also been accused of having triggered the explosion that destroyed hundreds of years of of public records. Other people say 
nothing to do with him, that it was blown up by a, a free state shell. So you know, where do you stand on that controversy? Well, I, I think, you know, I just look at, look at the facts uh, quite dispassionately. And uh, when the buildings were taken over, uh, they were smart enough not to put the munitions in where they were living. And so they looked around and they found uh, a place and that had a basement. So they put them over in the records office. Now, the records office was one of the first buildings uh, which was captured by the Free State. And uh, the Republicans sort of withdrew back into the central spot. And eventually, you know, the dome collapsed. Uh, John Reagan has done an excellent uh, story on a timeline almost as to how that retreat into the central part and what the role of the Republicans was. I think uh, John's point was... We actually don't know how it exploded, but we do know that the free states started to approach from that Western perspective into the records house. And at some point during that bombardment, you know, the explosion occurred. It is tragic for Irish history, and I'm so supportive of the cause, which is trying to reconstruct all of the records for that house. And hopefully within another 10 years, we'll have that. Ireland wasn't a particularly warm place for anybody who had fought on the Republican side in the uh, Civil War. Many left the country, many left for America. Your, your father ends up in America, but he, he goes to Europe first. Tell us about what he did there. Well, yes, as people were let out of jail, I think you know juniors were let out first and the seniors were retained. He wasn't let out until July 1924. The senior men and many others had gone on a 41-day hunger strike. So when you combine his ill health from uh, the wounds with a 41-day hunger strike, he was in no condition to do anything. And the rationale for the delay of release was that he might start another war. Anyway, so take the facts. He gets out of jail, goes home. Though he's still a member of the IRA and attends at least one of the meetings of the IRA council, Basically, he's so sick that he just has to, he's advised to get out of Ireland, and he gets uh, money from the White Cross and goes to Europe to recover. He's, at this time, he has a bad heart, and he ultimately, he dies of, of heart failure, and he goes to Spain and starts uh, rebuilding his life, and he comes back a year later in 26, tries medical school, is still having a, a poor academic experience. And um, de Valera asks him, uh, along with Frank Aiken, to go out to America to fundraise uh, for a paper, an idea he had that we want an independent nationalist paper called the Irish Press. So Father goes out and lectures on the east and west coast and eventually falls off that bandwagon after they had created, a, I think, uh, up to $500,000 was collected. By that time, you're right. He doesn't want to come back to Ireland. He's had a haunting time. He's a, a ghost figure. No one's going to employ him. You know, his brothers uh, can't get their medical jobs here and go to London. And so he just stays on in America, and he has the idea of writing his memoirs. So, you know, a lot of his uh, comrades, uh, O'Connor and Ophelon and others, were already writing. So he decides, well, he'll he'll write his memoir, 
And that's how On Another Man's Ruin and The Singing Flame were, were written. And in the course of that, of course, he met a lot of intellectuals and people in the Irish and the artistic community. And he was a very versatile fellow, partly because, you know, we've often referred to uh, these periods of imprisonment as a, a time of improvement or, or a university. And so the reading list in, in my book, uh, No Surrender Here, that of the book sent into him by his advisors is a university course. And so he's well up to discuss arts and music and literature uh, with people he meets in America and Mexico. One of the people he meets in America is a sculptor, Helen Hooker. That was in 1933. They married in 1935. The marriage didn't last, but in that early period, were they very much kindred spirits, do you think? Indeed. My mother was a prominent Connecticut family, but she was not a great student, did not want to go to university, told her father that, give me the money to be the artist that I want to do. And part of her inhibition was because she was stuttered. She could create things with her hands, but not with her, her mind and express it in a written form. So she was smart, but she just couldn't do that. And so she knew and she traveled broadly in art. And when she met this uh, Irishman who also had traveled broadly and knew about art, he could express to her what the sort of the university cultural course of, of art. And they sort of fell in love over that whole artistic world. He had collected photography in Mexico and New Mexico. Uh, she was a photographer, a sculptor, a painter, uh, a carver. And, you know, one of the surprising things to me was that when I figured out why didn't he marry one of the common on the Mon people, you know, that were all after him, quote unquote. Um, she, my mother wasn't. It was it was helpful not to have that in his life. Uh, he didn't he'd had that and it was past. So he wanted a new life in the arts. And he was quoted as saying, my life will be in the arts in them lies happiness. And so as he comes back to Ireland with modernist ideas, he and my mother are able to come into an artistic community and falls readily in with a Jack Yates and Mamie Jellett and Evie Hone and people of that, that ilk. And so he creates on a whole new life for himself, a different image, different persona than the military person. Now, the military person certainly helped my mother because she was the wife of Ernie O'Malley, but uh, she was a person who uh, stood on her own feet and did her own art and was in the first exhibition of uh, living art in 1943, 44, 45, 46, and she had a one-man show in 1950, and uh, several shows after that at the Irish Museum of Modern Art. And so, you know, she had her own integrity and stood by him herself. Your father had many famous friends, including the legendary Hollywood film director John Ford, or Sean O'Farna, as he often liked to be called. They worked together on a number of projects, most notably, I suppose, the film The Quiet Man. And I think your father was particularly proud of his association with that wonderful film. Yeah, I, I've never, you know, I must have seen uh, the movie once, but I never asked him about it. I would say he would have been proud of the friendship, but, you know, one of his roles was an IRA consultant, both in that movie as well as The Three Leaves or a Shamrock, uh, which came out in 56. Both of them, he, there was an IRA role, but 
I don't think, I think Father must have cringed at the role that ultimately Hollywood imposed on John Ford uh, to represent the IRA in the movie. So we sort of discount that part. But his role of friendship with John Ford uh, was legendary because he was uh, not in the employ of Ford. And he could walk away. I mean, who else could walk away? Uh, the producer, the director, the actors? No. Only Ernie O'Malley could walk away, turn his back on him. And so he did once or twice, and there was some tension. But ultimately, he realized uh, he was a good friend. And, and, you know, the fact that he blew his stack was just his temperament rather than his intention. And so he would go back and, and help him. So they had uh, a great life together during those uh, you know, a movie takes about two months, so I remember it well because I was there. Now, what are the things that he's most noted for, and historians are very Irish historians are very grateful for, is his work as an oral historian. The interviews he recorded with veterans of the Irish Revolution and veterans of the Civil War. Thanks to you and University College Dublin, these are available for for people to read. But what's particularly striking is. He didn't just interview one side of the Civil War. He interviewed men that he had fought against in the Civil War. That suggests somebody who wasn't bitter. Would, would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. I mean, if you go back to the premise that uh, was Ernie Malley anti-British, and this came up, I remember, in conversations, he said, no, and, and in, in his writings, he said, I'm not anti-British, it's just I don't want them in Ireland. And so the same thing uh, about the free state would, he said, you know, they made a mistake. I never heard him say that we made a mistake. But, you know, in his letters to, in that book, uh, No Surrender Here, that this great correspondence with Molly Childers. Ultimately, you know, Molly Childers is trying to shape Ernie O'Malley as a new Erskine Childers, going to go into politics and one thing and another. And Ernie just decides that that role is too much for him. He's not a politician. He was a military person. The military has failed, and so it's up to a new generation. And so I see that as a takeoff into his new life. And he's trying to recover, he's reading his books, and he's, he's intent upon where he's going in the future. So he, he basically gives that life up. Well, the book is called Ernie O'Malley, A Life by Harry F. Martin, and my guest Cormac O'Malley is published by Merrion Press and is available in all good bookshops. Cormac, thank you very much indeed for coming into the History Show and uh, talking about one of the, if not the most extraordinary writer of the Irish Revolution and the Irish Civil War, your father, Ernie O'Malley. Thank you very much. Thank you, Miles. <laughs>